Welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Here's your host, Amanda Galbraith. Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, a show where we talk about the biggest stories of the week um, across the country with some pretty awesome panelists that I'm looking forward to talking to today. Um, that includes, we have Natasha Hall, co-host of Montreal Now on CJAD, and Jennifer Pegliero, City Hall reporter with the Toronto Star. Natasha and Jennifer, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Hey, great to be here. Hey, this, I'm actually also very pumped to have an all-female show. That very rarely happens in radio, so uh, we should celebrate this, <laughs> this moment with all the estrogen that we're uh, we're going to roll out in our hot takes. Here, um, here. So the big... Here exactly, exactly. Um, so the big story we've heard a lot about this week, and I'm curious on the panel's take on this for sure, is Rolling Thunder. So up to a thousand people are expected to descend on Ottawa this weekend as part of the Rolling Thunder bike convoy. Organizers say the multi-day rally is an effort to, and I'm quotation marks here, take back quote unquote the National War Memorial that, in their words, was quote unquote desecrated during the Freedom Convoy occupation. Now, the desecrating they're concerned about is not the fact that we saw a woman jumping on the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier or evidence that individuals or something was urinating on the monument. No, it's the fact that fences were erected to stop people from accessing the monument. All right. Uh, Ottawa residents are understandably concerned after living through weeks of, you know, what they would describe as a terrible experience with the Freedom Convoy occupation months ago. Um, and there are also links from this group to conspiracy theorist Chris Sky. Evan Solomon spoke to the convoy organizers this week about their connections to the Freedom Convoy. This guy has nothing to do with what is happening on the veteran side, okay? There's a, there's a list of the things that will be happening on that day. He is not a special guest of us. He's not part of Veterans for Freedom. This has got nothing to do with Chris Sky. Well, it's weird, though, because uh, Donnie, the producer, checked it out, and their website still has Chris Sky listed as a speaker on, on Saturday at 2 p.m. So, <laughs> I don't know. You can stay to believe. But after that interview, they've attempted to distance themselves from him. Um, they've also said they have no intent to run motorcycles at night. So, they're going to ride their bikes by the monument and have a Veterans for Freedom service at the War Memorial on Saturday morning. Acting Ottawa Police Chief Steve Bell said that the city is prepared this time for what's about to happen, and he also acknowledged the trauma the city has been through before. The goal of this weekend is to maintain community safety and public safety on our streets as this event unrolls. Uh, we do know that there's been a fracture in trust between our community and the police service as, a, as an outcome of the, the occupation in February. Now, my take of this is I think this whole thing's going to be a bit of a lunch bag letdown. I think folks are worked up about it. Do I like Chris Guy? No. Um, you know, do I think the organizers of this are, um, you know, luminaries of the Canadian public? No. But, you know, motorcycle, a couple hundred motorcycles are not the same as 400 trucks parked in downtown Ottawa. And I think also the Ottawa police know what they're doing now. They've learned from what's happened before. Um, Natasha, I'll go to you first. Do you think... Are you, as, are you worried about this? I mean, you're in Montreal. It's a little closer to Ottawa than I am. Um, or do you think this is a bit overhyped? Um, I think, you know, what's that expression? Fool me once. So, you know, <laughs> we've lived through hell. I was in Ottawa just days after the protests wrapped up. And that whole city, especially the downtown core, was in a state of shock. 
They were financially destroyed, emotionally destroyed. And I, I haven't been back since, but I bet they're in, still in a state of recovery. So no matter what, to me, it seems too soon. It seems insensitive. It just seems like a bad idea, not to mention the $35 million price tag, right, on, on the last protest that the feds are now going to be footing the bill for, which ultimately means we're paying for it. Now, in terms of actual concern, yes, they seem much better organized. Wellington Street is completely blocked off. There won't be access uh, to Parliament Hill like there was um, but in hearing that organizer, Neil Scherge, speaking to um, Evan this week, he sounded defensive, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Like, yes, okay, he wants to distance himself from Chris Skye, but then why is Chris Skye's name all over this event, as you mentioned? If this is really about helping to heal and giving back dignity to the monument and to the city, they're going about it the wrong way. Um, I, I think there's very good cause to be concerned, and I think that we shouldn't be trusting anything that anyone involved in this is saying right now. Jen, do you think there's cause for concern or do you think we're, you know, I guess I could say I myself included, we're talking about us, us in the media are sort of overhyping this given what happened a couple months ago. Yeah, I think it's reasonable for people to be concerned. You know, like Natasha said, people are pretty scarred by the the blockades, uh, by the truckers. I think, though, if that hadn't happened, we, we might not even be talking about this or it wouldn't be kind of your top story today. I think it's reasonable to pay attention to it. And again, you know, what the police will do about it if, in fact, it does get out of hand and if the intentions of these protesters or a faction of these protesters is not what it seems. You know, their stated intentions seem fine. You know, there's, you know, dozens of protests in Toronto, uh, you know, seemingly every month and it, it goes off fine and people don't really pay too much attention to it unless you're stuck at an intersection. But I think that it makes sense to be keeping an eye on it just given what happened and to ensure that police can keep uh, something like this under control. But you're totally right. This is not the same as a bunch of trucks stopping in the middle of the street. You know, like I was thinking about this when I was reading up on it and, you know, in Port Dover, they have this like very fun, mm -hmm. friendly motorcycle rally every year. And it seems awesome. And um, the, the town actually loves it because it brings in tourism for that one day planned every year. So like it, it could be totally fine. And if it really is primarily veterans who are seemingly just trying to bring attention to, um, you know, their plight and like the plight of our ancestors, then, you know, that that's seemingly fine. But of course, that's the stated intentions. And I guess we won't really know until we see people show up. Well, and then why have anybody like Chris Skye involved, someone who has, you know, uttered death threats, he's been arrested for that. He's got a terrible history of, of homophobia, of, you know, racism of, I mean, you name it, he's not exactly a great guy uh, to be associated with a, an, a peaceful event. If it's supposed to be all about veterans, what's this guy doing there? I'm all for peaceful protests, personally. Um, you know, and if it is that, great. Um, I just, you know, last time it divulged into a siege. Totally. And that clip did sound defensive. Like mm -hmm. you know, when Amanda was pointing out that they, the producers here haven't, uh, haven't seen them totally disassociate themselves. So I do think that those are like things to watch. Like what is the real intentions versus the stated intentions? And, and I guess the, a question I want to ask you there, because like speaking, because there are, I think there's, I mean, listen, this group is a bit kooky. Like there's a promo. Actually, do we have? <laughs> yes. Is there the, can we play the promo video or the promo that we have on the clip? The clip I didn't play yet. Can we just play that real quick for the panel? Bikers are coming. The people are coming. Canada is coming. What 
you going to do now? I mean, and then they go on to taunt the chief of police in Ottawa. So, I mean, like, oh. obviously... <laughs> Yeah, that's a bit concerning. I hadn't heard that. That's <laughs> yeah, it's like it's a bit ominous, right? Yeah, yeah. So it, I mean, so I think you've got, and this is interesting. We saw this with the convoy, right? And I think it's it's these movements. And I want to ask you about this. And, um, you know, you get elements. I'm just a veteran. I, you know, want to protect the war memorial. Fine. And then you get the Chris Skies of the world. And I feel like now we're at this place where people who are feel the system or government does not represent them kind of glom onto this. We are other. And then you get all of this together. So what responsibilities of us to dig into the fact that it, are they all Chris Skies? Is there something in the middle? Like, how do we talk about kind of groups like this that sort of spiral into different different areas? Um, maybe, Jen, I'll go to you quickly first, about 30 seconds for that. Yeah, I think that there's been um, a lot of reporters and a lot of the folks that were in Ottawa did uh, a good job kind of looking into this element of far-right extremism. And I don't think we can ignore it. It's not that it doesn't exist here. And I think you do have to pay attention to it. There's sort of this um, desire to stay away from it and hopefully it'll go away. But that's often not the case, right? These people already feel othered, as you said, and you have Mm. to pay attention. Natasha, real quick to you, I've got 20 seconds. I think that's a great point. Um, And I think by attaching themselves to events like this, there's an effort being made to kind of normalize this. And I think our role is to remain dubious, to stay on guard, so to speak, and to uh, make them accountable for their words and their actions. Certainly. And I know all eyes are on Ottawa um, and there appears to be some action even in Toronto here, as we heard on the news before the show. So we'll continue to watch this. As the war in Ukraine rages on and the atrocities mount, why is Canada one of the last countries still allowing the Russian ambassador to stay? We're going to ask the panel that after the break. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. This is Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. Happy Friday wherever you are. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, where we break down the five biggest stories of the week. And this week, I have an awesome panel of Natasha Hall, co-host of Montreal Now on CJAD, and Jennifer Pagliaro, City Hall reporter with the Toronto Star. So as I mentioned before the break, um, you know, I wanted to talk about Ukraine today. And we've talked a lot about the sh- on the show about the atrocities happening in Ukraine. And we do that because um, I think it's important to continue to talk about it. We can't forget what's happening there. And it's been over 64 days, right? And often with wars, with atrocities in the world, yes, initially it makes headlines, um, but then people look away. Um, we've had reports recently that thousands of children are being forcibly deported to Russia. Um, stories of young girls being raped on the street in front of their families. Civilians in Maripol are being tortured or starved to death. All of this was talked about at this week at the as by human rights lawyer Amal Clooney, who spoke to the UN and called Ukraine, quote, a slaughterhouse in the heart of Europe. And I think a lot of Canadians continue to ask themselves, what can we do about this, right? And I, I know our government has stepped up and done things, not everything. I think NATO is, is, is trying, certainly. Um, but one thing they've been called on to do for more than two months now um, by both the opposition and the Ukrainian Canadian Congress is for the federal government to expel the Russian ambassador. Why? Well, listen to this interview he did on The Evan Solomon Show. About bombing and missile strikes, Russian army only destroys the military facilities. Sir, you know that's a lie. I, I, oh. Sir, we have pictures of apartment buildings. Our own reporters have seen it. So it was a wild interview. That's Russian Ambassador Oleg Stepanov, um, who, you know, has been 
in Canada, um, and you know the Russian embassy has been found to have contravened uh, Twitter rules around um, publishing propaganda. Um, they've been pushing out sort of the Russian line on what's happening in Ukraine, calling it um, you know lies and I think a lot of mistruths. Um, the prime minister has responded to the ask that they expel those ambassadors by saying it would be largely symbolic and result in a, in a countermand from the Russian government, which would be to expel the Canadian ambassador. He said that would undermine the work and information gathering that the Canadian embassy is doing in Russia. Um, but Canada's allies don't have the same concerns, right? European countries have expelled more than 200 Russian diplomats after news of war crimes in Bukha were made public. Um, and this is all well here in Canada. We still have Russian propaganda being spread by a government we're allowing to be here. And while, yeah, Melanie Jolie, who's a foreign affairs minister, did summon the Russian ambassador to her office to say she's not happy with him and kind of wrap him on the knuckles, um, you know, if they continue to do what they do. So to you first, Natasha, do you think we should expel the Russian ambassador or do you think the government's right to say it's symbolic and we're better off to have Canadian, um, Canadian diplomats in Russia doing their work there? I'm stunned that he hasn't been expelled already. I And especially after hearing that interview, I found that interview to be so deeply disturbing, like just beyond troubling. And the fact that he's saying, well, that's just one narrative and then continues to tell the lies, even when being called out to me right there, that's grounds alone. Bye-bye, get out. And if it is just a symbolic gesture, if it is no more than that, then what have we got to lose? I was also kind of stunned to learn that our, our diplomats, our ambassador is still in Moscow. I would have thought they would have been long back home safe and sound. Now, listen, like I am I am not an expert by any means in di international diplomacy. I'm, I'm, you know, sometimes not even diplomatic in my own day to day <laughs> interaction. <laughs> same, same. <laughs> You know, I try, I try to be diplomatic, but this call, you know, saying, uh, you know, we, he wants a more, what did he say? A quiet, sober mode. Yeah. Um, that, that the time for that is long gone. That was gone. The moment that the invasion began, the moment that the first bomb, uh, you know, was, and, and the first shots were fired. So to me, this should have already happened. And, and I agree with you with what you said about, the fact that apathy starts to set in that, you know, at some point we just start to accept that these atrocities and these horrors are happening and that we are powerless to do anything about it. So, yes, yeah, 64 days later, um, you know, just because we don't have a solution doesn't mean we do nothing. Yeah, I, I want to pick up on the apathy piece. because I want to ask you both about that as, as, as women in media. How do we keep talking about this? But Jen, to you first, you know, we've got Germany, the Netherlands, Spain, Estonia, Italy. They've all chosen to expel Russian diplomats. Why do you think Canada hasn't done it? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what Natasha said. Like, it's hard to see, you know, Russian officials, including the diplomats here, as anything but bad faith actors at this point. I think mm -hmm. that's like the only real objective way to look at this and you know it comes down to like what is the real like cost benefit analysis here if you just want to take the unemo unemotional approach and I I'm not necessarily convinced that there is a real practical reason to uh, have our diplomats in Russia at this point. I, you know, if I were a speaking to minister speaking uh, to the prime minister, I'd be really pushing them on that because as you've pointed out, Amanda, there's, there's, there's lots of other allies who don't seem to have the same problem uh, having their diplomats expelled. And from what I've always understood about these positions, they are largely symbolic. And so it's difficult to understand uh, a really good reason why we wouldn't be moving ahead and joining our allies on that front. Like Natasha said, if it is just symbolic, then why not just go ahead? 
Yeah, and it's interesting too. I was when reading about this. Um, you know, some Canadian security experts estimate that like one fifth of the diplomats here are just straight up like spies, like Kremlin like, agents who are not here on dip. And there's about they estimate there's about eighty seven Russian diplomats in Canada now. We don't know how many Canadians are in Russia on uh, as diplomats there, but um, some reports have said over thirty. So um, I did want to pick up on what Natasha kind of mentioned, um, and I sort of talked about at the top is. This story, it's been 64 days, right? And even for me, and I've, we've tried to talk about it on the show, I think it's important. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this week when we talked to, I talked to Donnie the producer about this before was that this is a new way to advance it, right? This is a new way to talk about the story because I think we need to keep it front and center. Um, when we don't, you know, we have what happens in Afghanistan, right, which was a you know, huge story for a couple of weeks. Um, you know, we still have people who have supported Canada. They're um, stuck in diplomatic limbo, can't get back here as uh, you know, their lives are at risk um, and they can't get to Canada, even though they're technically should be here um, under as, as refugees or, or whatever. So, Natasha, how do you how do you think through talking about this story? How do you think we can keep covering it and keep making it relevant so Canadians you know, don't look away? I mean, I, I I hate to say it because generally speaking, I'm not a fan of those like shock value stories and, and, you know, trying to, you know, upset people to get a reaction. But I think this is one of those situations where there's really no other option. So we've been on our show checking in very regularly with uh, a Ukrainian MP who, you know, when she can talk to us, sometimes it's from a bomb shelter, sometimes it's from a, you know, a, a, she never tells us exactly where she is for her own safety. And she speaks to us about what she's seen. And, oh God, sometimes it's really, it's really awful and it's really hard to hear. Um, and we try to warn people that, you know, it could be deeply upsetting to hear and it could even be triggering like, like what she saw in Bucha after the slaughter there. Um, but I think we have to keep telling those stories, no matter how much we don't want to hear it, no, ma no matter how much we don't want to have just the order of our day-to-day -day lives upset and we feel helpless to do anything, I think we need to be shocked into continuing to react and do whatever we can, be it just, you know, at, here in Montreal, a lot of people are just preparing to try to receive families um, once that big influx of Ukrainian refugees begins. I mean, it has begun, but it's just on a small level right now. Um, so I think we have to just keep telling the stories that people don't necessarily want to hear, but need to hear. Jen, you know, in your work and I, you know, watching your reporting, you tell stories of people who sometimes are forgotten. Um, you know, I've got about a minute left. How do you, how do you think we need to keep telling the story? How would you approach it if you were kind of sitting in Ottawa trying to make sure that we keep the government accountable on this? Yeah, I think I think Natasha's approach is a good one. And I would I think I would add to that, like additional coverage would be to focus on those kind of like everyday people, like those ties that bind. So, you know, if there's like a teacher there with connections to, um, you know, Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa, um, you know, I've seen a lot. Um, you've probably seen this, too, because I know you're a big supporter of dog rescue on uh, my Instagram <laughs> and all my social media feeds of these people that are trying to save all the pets that got abandoned because people were literally running from bombs and gunfire and like that might seem like clickbait but actually in this case I think it's a way to get the average person to care about the bigger picture policy stuff when you get them in there on the on the pet front let's call it and I think you can do really good work that way to get people to continue to pay attention mm -hmm. and we'll continue of course to pay attention to this story on the show because I think it's important um, as well Natasha and, and I'm sure many others uh, a fast food chain made big news this week 
when they skirted local employment rules by rolling out virtual cashiers who work from Nicaragua. Are we okay with this? Find out after the break. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. The Free For All Friday Roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, and I can't hear that song and not think of being a teenager <laughs> watching Clueless and dancing around. Uh, but anyway, uh, you're <laughs> listening to... Yeah, see, I hear the laughter. I feel aged, but it makes me happy. Um, so you're listening to the laughter there, I believe, of Natasha Hall, co-host of Montreal Now on CJAD, and with me as well as Jennifer Pagliaro, City Hall reporter with the Toronto Star. Both of them are here to debate the biggest stories of the week in this story was uh, an interesting one that popped up, and I would love to hear their takes. I think there's lots of debate here. Um, so we've all heard how tough it is to hire help in the service industry, right? Many people in the pandemic, they retooled. A cousin of mine was a server. He couldn't work, so he went back and got a degree in uh, programming, computer programming. Now he's doing that. He loves his life. Um, so one fast food company felt they hit upon an innovative solution. They hired a virtual cashier from Nicaragua. So basically, you walk up, you go into the store to order, you walk up, um, there's a video kiosk in front of you, and there's the, the screen will light up when it, when it feels your motion. There's a man on screen wearing a headset ready to take your order. Um, now, the catch here is that because he's at a call center in Nicaragua rather than in Ontario, making $15 an hour, he only makes $3.75. The program, which was pioneered by Freshy at a select few locations here in Ontario, um, began apparently in January. And that practice, while raising eyebrows, is legal, says employment lawyer John Pincus when he spoke with CTV News. I would say that it is legal. Uh, employment standards in Ontario only apply to either someone who's working in Ontario or who is working elsewhere, but it's a con continuation of work that's being done in Ontario, which doesn't appear to be the case here. This isn't the first time a fast food company's done this. Um, so U.S. company Jack in the Box, which I will say I've never eaten at, um, has been outsourcing drive through both domestically and internationally since 2008. So you go to the drive through you may not be talking to somebody in that store. Now, I kind of wanted to have a different take on this. Obviously, this generally, I think, is upsetting to folks. Um, but I looked into the cost of living in Nicaragua. So let's say, you know, we did pay them 50. We chose to pay the person there $15 an hour. So... Here in Canada, we know things are expensive. Um, but basically, people say you can live pretty comfortably on um, 1200 to 1500 bucks a month. $2,000 a month, you'd be in the lap of luxury. For example, you can buy a house fully furnished with ocean views in Nicaragua for $100,000. Um, I can't even get a parking spot in Toronto for that much money. Um, the estimate costs of fruits and veggies for one person for a week is about 10 bucks. Um, your monthly grocery bill maxed out would probably be about 300 bucks. That's in total. If you want to go out to eat an average meal, three bucks to six bucks for like, you know, rice, protein, you know, whatever drink fancy meal is $20. Um, this one I really liked a maid can come for three times a week for up to a month. And that's going to cost run you about 36 bucks. So I want to ask the panelists and Natasha, I'll go to you first. Is it offensive to pay someone in a different country, their livable wage when the company they're working for has a rate? That is much higher. A hundred percent. Take it away. This is, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it's skeevy. Um, I, yes, we have a labor shortage in this country. I mean, not just in this country, we have a labor shortage everywhere. And a big part of the reason we have a labor shortage is because we're expecting people to do not so great jobs for really not so great pay. And the solution to that is not to find people elsewhere who are willing to do that. 
the solution is to pay people a, a decent wage. So here in Quebec, our minimum wage is about to go up to 14.25. As of May 1st, there's been a, a ton of complaints um, that that's not enough given our cost of living here. Obviously the cost of living is much less in Nicaragua, but this to me is not a, a reasonable solution to the problem. It's not just the pay, it's also the conditions, right? Whenever something is outsourced, it leaves me with an uneasy feeling that we're taking advantage of people. Um, you know, they end up working hours that are, you know, sometimes it's the middle of the night for them and they don't have family lives. It's the expectations of how long they have to work, the lack of benefits and vacation. In my opinion, um, you sh they should, these companies should like Freshie should have to conform to the pay and labor standards of wherever the, the, the job is physically located. That, that, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, so if that teller, if that teller's being zoomed in, then the, the laws of where it's actually happening should apply those standards. Uh, Jen, what do you, do you think, do you, does that make sense to you that no matter where you're working from, the law should apply to you in the country that you're, you know, providing the service? You know, I, I think this story raised actually a lot of interesting issues about like all of the work in this country that we do already outsource. You know, you man, yeah. you mentioned a couple of things and, you know, it's, it's, it's very common that even now when you call your bank or like essential services that you are not speaking to someone that's necessarily located in this country, they're located at call centers around the world. And I'm not sure that we've always like given that a second thought, but it's interesting that in this context in the freshie, um, we're upset about it. And, mm. and I, I share some of Natasha's mm. concerns about like, that this is not the right way to get workers back into these needed industries. Like the way to get workers back into these industries is to have fair wage and benefits and management. My, I think my concern with outsourcing these jobs is the um, lack of transparency and oversight into the conditions that these workers face in these call centers that uh, I, you know, I assume would be managed by, not by Freshie, but by a third party in, in whatever country they're in. And, and I have no insight into what that looks like. And other than like reporting that may have been done on call centers in, in other parts of the world. And so I think that there is some corporate responsibility there. I, you know, I, the story in the star says it's not illegal to do this, but there may be some ethical questions about how we're treating these workers. It, to your point, like to that, it's a great point, Jen, right? Which I mm -hmm. thought of too um, when I was thinking, but like, is I call, you know, we get hold of call centers all the time. The reason we're upset is because we can physically see it, like it's in front of us. Yeah. Um, but we've also gone to, you know, like I, the Shoppers Drug Mart down that they used to have five cashiers or four cashiers. Now it's like six kiosks, like, like mm -hmm. the computer operated ones, and there's one cashier there. So to my mind, it's kind of like, is it better to have of someone from Nicaragua who's making a little bit of money than just a full computer? Or are yeah. we just, you know, this is just like, yeah, so go, go ahead. That's a, that's a good question. Like, you know, I was, as I was thinking about this too, like, you know, in other like first world countries, like I'm thinking about Japan, for example, there's so much automation, like you can get so many things from a vending machine that you can't get here. You walk into a ramen shop and there's not like a hostess necessarily, like you push buttons on a computer and then you get your, your food. And I imagine at one point they probably had a server that did that work, but it's become normalized in other places. And I'd be interested to know what the like labor practices are in these places where there is a lot of automation and how they are compensating for that in the workforce. 
I think too, it would be incredibly interesting. Like you said, Jen, the only thing we know is uh, about those call centers are reports that we've seen, right? And so we've heard about the horrible conditions and the hours and, and it not being fair to having any kind of you know normal family life. Um, it would be interesting to speak to someone doing that job in Nicaragua because perhaps, you know, it's easy to get righteous about it, but perhaps this is life-changing for them. Perhaps this is a, a great, you know, consistent job uh they're you know not scrubbing toilets or something you know some job that they were doing before that they really didn't want to be doing so perhaps this is a really positive thing for them and is allowing their family to move up in the world so i i, I wasn't thinking about it from that perspective uh and i think perhaps we need to yeah because i mean if you look at it like 375 an hour um that's if you work an eight hour day who knows right that's 30 bucks um which obviously sounds like nothing to us but if you you know the cost to eat out of a meal is three bucks. If your grocery bill for the month for two people is, you know, maximum 300. I mean, it still feels not, wrong to me. I'm saying it. I'm I, I know. And I'm thinking about it. And yet <laughs> I, I still feel like we're just taking advantage of people and that we're not able to pay people here a decent wage to do a, a less desirable job. Yeah. And maybe I, like, I totally, I totally hear you, but go ahead, Jen, sir. Yeah. Like maybe there's some middle ground, right? Like it's, it's totally, re there's a reason why these call centers are so popular in other countries. Like, yeah, like Natasha said, like maybe we shouldn't be quick to judge on what is a fair wage for, for other people. But like, I feel like we do have a responsibility to workers here and it, we're sort of, um, you know, abdicating that responsibility in some ways by outsourcing, depending on what the corporate practices are. So I think your dog agrees. My dog agrees with Jen. <laughs> so I would yell at Toby. Thanks, Toby. But... <laughs> yeah, but I, I agree with you. I was reading this story, researching it, and like my head thinks, okay, this is rational. This may be a living wage. But my heart says this makes me uncomfortable. Um, and yet here we sit, right? And as Jen pointed out, there's all this kind of um, automation. There is outsourcing all over the economy that we don't see in our face every single day. So I'm sure this will continue to uh, to occur. And I'm sure this isn't probably the last we've heard of Freshie and their automated system. Uh, Matea Roach has captured Canadians' hearts with her record-breaking Jeopardy run. But is it okay for media to point out that she's a lesbian when they cover it? Find out what the panel thinks after the break. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. You're listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the back end of the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, where we debate the biggest stories of the week with some awesome people. And this week, we have Natasha Hall, co-host of Montreal Now on CJAD, and Jennifer Pegliero, City Hall reporter with the Toronto Star. And in this segment, we like to have a little bit of fun, although we've got some like a more some more serious topics um, today. This first one being um, Matea Roach. She's sort of captured the hearts of Canadians. A 23-year-old tutor has now won 18 games and counting, and she's got the eighth longest win streak in Jeopardy history. Here's some audio from earlier this week when she extended her win streak to, six, to 17 games. With $27,201 today, you are now a 17-day Jeopardy champion. Your total, $396,182. Which is amazing, right? Um, it's exciting. We're all happy for a Canadian. But there's been some interesting debate around this because uh, NBC, for example, got into some hot water when they tweeted out news of her streak, but rather than use her name, they tweeted her sexual orientation. Mattia is a lesbian. Um, and something that she's actually 
puts first. If you read her Twitter bio, the first thing says lesbian Nova Scotian, eight time, 18 times Jeopardy champ. And then everything that happens will happen today. Um, just so curious to the panel, do you think it's offensive that rather than say, you know, Mateo Roach won, is, you know, got a, has an 18-day streak or 18-game streak, they say lesbian Canadian won? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Natasha, is that okay? Is it okay because it's celebratory? Um, or is that just not something that needs to be – we don't say like straight woman wins Jeopardy. Um, so what right. do you make of that, Natasha? Okay, so I think the fact that, like you said, that Matea labels herself like that first and foremost um, plays a huge role here because then there's ownership over it, right? I am so smitten with her, by the way. I feel like she's the like she's the girl I would have wanted to be buddies with in high school, you know. And and I was smitten with Amy Schneider too, in so much that I feel like there's something refreshing, there's ex- there's something exciting and new about this, and I think it's incredibly healthy to kind of be normalizing. Uh, what it means to be LGBTQ plus for a largely mainstream audience, right? So I think it can it can be so helpful in making people more open-minded. Like I'm thinking about some of the people I know who watch Jeopardy. I, I do too, but lots of the people I know aren't exactly um, enlightened, shall we say, on that front. So I think <laughs> any opportunity to kind of normalize it and make it cool and more accepting is healthy. And the fact that she takes ownership to me, that that does make it okay. Jen, is it okay to, you know, say lesbian woman wins because she self-identifies as a lesbian or uh, should NBC apologize? You know, like first and foremost, I actually just think it's kind of lazy journalism and like just coming at it from like the perspective of being a reporter. Like it's important to gather all this information about people, but we do have a responsibility in the way we label people and present people to the world, especially in a case like this. Like if I'm interviewing, you know, an average person, I might ask them like, is there anything... Uh, that you prefer to be identified as like kind of these standard questions and you could have that conversation you know she's kind of like a mini celebrity now uh, at least a Canadian celebrity and maybe uh, you don't have the opportunity to talk to her directly Uh, it does make a difference that she that she is out that she is proud that she labels herself that way on her own social media I think the better way around this would just to be to look at the story from like what are the important facts people need to know I think when it comes to Jeopardy winners in my experience is like we often like to know where they come from we like to know if they're like a hometown hero Mm -hmm. of ours but I'm not sure it's relevant you know like who she's attracted to or or interested in and and her her sexual orientation and so I think a better way around that would have been to maybe quote from her bio in the context of the story but you don't necessarily need to label her that way in the headline yeah female spencer goes on to win. yeah like if you think about it in the context of other people right like my partner just said to me would you would you label kyle lowry as a black nba player like that seems completely unnecessary Mm -hmm. he's just he's just a he was just a former raptor you know uh all-star champ nba player like what are the relevant things to the role that he has as a basketball player and the same thing applies to everyone in journalism and this kind of feels like a journalism 101 misstep I mean, I totally see your point, and yet I can't help but think, though, if it makes even one more person have a bit more of an open mind, then that's a win. Yeah, I think maybe it's just about, like, the debate over, like, does it need to be in the headline? I think it's totally great the Uh way that she presents herself to the world, and you can reflect that in the story, absolutely. And I think it is important, you know, in in the everyday context, game show or what have you, that um that that like a young a young person could see themselves in in her and and someone to be celebrated uh for sure i agree with you on that 
All right. Agree to disagree, but agree on disagreeing as I hear it. <laughs> um, <laughs> we disagree well. <laughs> we disagree politely, just like good Canadians. Um, I want I want to get this last one because the world basically set themselves on fire this week when Elon Musk acquired Twitter after a bit of a saga in which he kind of became the company's largest shareholder. Then he was going to go on the board. Then he offered to buy it, securing the firm for roughly $44 billion, with a B, dollars. And then everybody freaked out. People, you know, there were mass resign, like well, allegedly mass people resigning from Twitter. We do know there's been some groups of folks that have delisted. Other people see him as a savior. Um, I think this is a whole lot of noise about not very much, to be honest. Um, I'll be interesting to see what what Musk does with the account. But um, I'm not going to say I take credit for this statement. But a Turkish journalist, uh, Ula Yakli, actually said this. She she tweeted, if democracy lies in the hands of a corporate board running an app that less than 5 or 4% of the population uses that would sell democracy for a 38% premium, we were doomed before this started, um, <laughs> which is sort of where I sit. <laughs> it's like if 4% of the world uses this thing and they're able to sell it, I'm not really sure if it's the keys to democracy. So, uh, Natasha, were you – do you think freedom of speech is in jeopardy because Elon Musk now has Twitter or should, you know, the world take a pill? Uh, he bugs me. Oh my God. He bugs me so much. <laughs> Elon Musk. Remember when he was telling us all to have more children and I'm like, okay, buddy, you pay for it. Like people can't afford to have more children. He's out of touch with reality. And this whole autocratic approach um, really just gets under my skin. He bugs me. Yeah. I read in the times today, he, when he got married the first time around, he uh, on the dance floor at the wedding, he told her I'm the alpha in this relationship. And oh, I yeah. feel like he's saying that to all of us over and over again in any different context he bugs me so there's by the way there's a wild story where his first wife gives an interview about their relationship and it anyway it, it's everything you think it would be and more Ugh. um jen <laughs> are you concerned about the future of of democracy or and i got about uh i'd say i've got about 30 45 seconds left for this one my like only view on this right now is like so fresh because I just finished watching that we crashed a show with Jared uh, Leto about the WeWork company. And it really is like a study on like what happens when you have this like highly problematic, like very insane leader at the front of like a billion dollar company. And like Elon is clearly a problematic person but like by no means should we be judging like the state of our democracy off of like a single social media platform mm. yeah agreed i think i think he will be an interesting character it's interesting to me that jack dorsey um endorsed him uh for this role calling it the savior or something so which who's the founder of twitter um, but again, I don't think the world will turn either way on this. Well, that is our show for the week. Um, thank you, Jen, for joining. Jen is a, is a friend of mine, and I'm really excited to have her on. I think she has great views. And thank you so much, Natasha, for joining the show again, ladies. I hope you will come back, and we love the all-female panel. Uh, mm -hmm. I want to thank our technical producer, Mike, uh, and also producer Donnie for, for helping me behind the scenes. Uh, I hope wherever you are, you're having an amazing Friday. I'm Amanda Galbraith. I will see you next week.